1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive.
0: It looks like your luggage is over 50 pounds. Is there anything you can take out?
1: Oh, yeah. Let me just toss all these $20 bills. Great. Let me grab you a trash can. Stop. Instead of throwing money away, move some clothes into a carry-on. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary.
2: With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band.
3: Next up for lead guitar. You're in
2: cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member
1: FDIC.
4: You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with L.D., Will the Thrill, and T.J. Two. <coughs>
3: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. Hello everybody, <laughs> greetings and salutations. And my big brother, Mr. TJ2, the deuce. Howdy! All right, TJ, would you, would you care to explain why this week is dramatically different from every other single week that we've had other than two other episodes.
5: So we teased uh, on our social media that we had something coming up that would perhaps melt the faces off our audience. And I think we actually said it may induce pants pooping of some kind. (laughs) Um, So anyone who is a longtime listener of this podcast knows that there is something that is mentioned in every single episode that we do. Without fail, every week, no matter who it is that we're doing a show on, we managed to work in a reference to Manfred Mann or Manfred Mann's Earthman. Yes. So imagine our surprise when the uh, guest uh, that LD and Will uh, interviewed a couple of weeks ago—and I'm sorry, remind it's, me of her name,
3: LD—Leslie Le- Ann Jones, one of the greatest rock authors of our time. We were so, so lucky to have her at the very
5: end of at the very end of of, of their interview with her. Because it's uh, something we feel compelled to do every week, they 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 asked if she knew uh, Manfred Mann, Manfred Mann's Earth Band had ever written an article about them, had ever considered writing a book about them, and she said, uh, and I'm not going to uh, insult our guest by trying to do my horrible British accent, Thank, but she, <laughs> Thank you <for> essentially that. <laughs> she essentially she said, uh, well, uh, you know, Tom McGinnis is uh, one of my best friends, <laughs> and so that set into motion something that when we started doing this a couple of years ago, it would have seemed unimaginable. We are actually able now to welcome onto the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast a former member of Manfred Mann, I, I believe still an ongoing member of the Manfreds, Mr. Tom McGinnis, welcome. Oh to-
3: my gosh, hi, welcome. <laughs> this is you,
6: Arsh, you have- Hello, how do I live up to that? <laughs> you
3: have no no idea what this means to us. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day, out of your life, just to talk to us because I don't know how much uh, you know about us, but we are massive fans of so you. The,
5: <laughs> yes, the, the, the funny thing is, is that, we, because, you know, obviously you're not normally eligible for our podcast, thankfully, because we cover yes. the lives, careers and deaths of, of uh, late musicians. But there were a couple of artists who we noticed just somehow came up in every episode. And, it, you know, like uh, Patula Clark got mentioned a lot for some reason. And I think the Bay City Rollers and Glass Tiger and Manfred Mann and Manfred Mann's Earthman. And it happens so frequently that it, you know that Manfred Mann came up on one occasion. And I've offhandedly said, and there it is, ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Mann reference of the podcast. Ha ha. And then without us even discussing it or it officially becoming a thing, we started intentionally writing Manfred Mann into every single episode that we've done.
3: So now, we, have, the, we have the worked in thread then but others such as David Bowie where you know it was a tweet like it's been very organic
5: or or, or Dusty Springfield I think was the most direct uh, easy connection we ever made but we've we've done episodes on Tom Petty and Rick James and Frank Sinatra and like that and had to find a way to tie them into Manfred Mann in some manner
3: but but you have been so prolific that it's been easy so can we can we start at the very beginning how did you how did you get into music? What, what, what did you formal education or was this learning by doing?
6: Well, um, I mean, I started by listening to the radio. There wasn't much music going on in my home. Uh, I was an only child. My parents didn't play, but we had lots of um, friends and relatives who live around about in, I grew up in Wimbledon, uh, a suburb of London. And, uh, Everyone I knew was called O'Brien, Murphy, Kelly. So there was a lot of singing, particularly rebel songs and things like that. Um, and the radio was on. But we had this weird radio because you have 110 volts in, um, in America, don't you? I that's we're a TJ. TJ?
3: Yes. Yeah, were, yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're we're 110.
6: Yeah. 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 And we're 240. But for some reason i lived in this little row of houses and all the houses were 110 which meant you could not buy any sort of electric electrical equipment and plug it in because everything sold in england was on 240 volts we were on 100 so we had cable radio no i've what, never heard of it anyway yeah I was gonna what, say. What, is, is what is cable radio, cable radio? <laughs> we had cable radio which had two stations oh jeez uh, one of which was the BBC Light Programme, and the other one was the BBC Home Service. And the Light Programme had music on it. And I used to hear music on there, and I'm talking about, you know, the music of the forties. Those were the first things I heard. And then for a while, for some reason, the Light Programme vanished, and we got AFN for a week or two. American Forces Network, mm-hmm. broadcasting to the forces in Europe. So I heard weird things like Amos and Andy,
7: very (laughs)
6: uncorrect. Yes. Um, But I'd hear, because of that, I was hearing a bit of what was happening in America. And then the boys downstairs from me, because we lived in a tiny house, which was divided in two. The boys downstairs were called Connolly, because their family was from Ireland as well. And the Connolly brothers, who were a few years older than me, they were playing these records. And they were Hank Williams and a great R&B saxophone player called Earl Bostic. So when I was like eight, nine years old, I'm hearing the roots of rock and roll without knowing it. So those were the first things that hit me. Then Johnny Ray hit me. I thought Johnny Ray was great when I heard him. And uh, my aunt, we didn't have a record player because you couldn't run an electric record player, but she gave me her wind-up record player and some records and she was a big fan of Fats Waller and the Ink Spots so I was listening to Fats Waller and the Ink Spots I was getting a sort of crash course in american music uh, from all of this and then somewhere around uh, you know rock and roll came along and i thought this is this is wild you know little richard was probably the first one that i heard that i thought wow yeah what is that music <laughs> Like Steve Martin in that film, what is that music? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and I yeah I, I wasn't a big fan of Elvis. I like the very early Elvis, but I like Jerry Lee Lewis and I like Larry Williams, I like Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, all those sorts of people. But what changed it from me just being a listener to being a player was a guy called Lonnie Donegan. Do you know Lonnie Donegan? Perhaps I know a song. Nine, but... 1956, Lonnie Donegan did a recording called The Rock Island Line, which was uh, originally a tune by Lead Belly. Actually, it goes back even before Lead Belly, but leave that aside. And it was just him strumming a guitar, three chords, string bass player, and a drummer, and electric guitarist. It was a sort of jazzy electric guitarist. And it was called Skiffle. Oh, Skiffle was. Yes. Skiffle, Skiffle that's yes. right. Lonnie Donegan did the whole skiffle thing.
3: Now later Um, on, David Bowie would do skiffle, right? Later on?
6: Well, I don't know about that, but you know, Lonnie Donegan got it from, it was used to describe Chicago music back in the twenties or thirties. And he somehow coined it for this thing he was doing, which was, he was singing um, American folk songs, but speed it up and strumming the guitar, just like Elvis strummed the guitar, I realized quite quickly. And um, Lonnie Donegan was the reason I picked up a guitar. John Lennon picked up a guitar. Paul McCartney picked up a guitar. It was all down to Lonnie Donegan, who had a string of number one hits in England, just doing these fast folk songs. He also had a hit with um, the Battle of New Orleans when he did a cover version, which was a big American hit. Uh, And, I started playing acoustic guitar and playing these folk songs fast. And all my friends bought guitars and we were all mm-hmm. strumming together and singing. And we quickly realized that if you amplified those three chords, you could play like Carl Perkins and all the rockabilly people and Buddy Holly. So, you know, went, went from an acoustic guitar to an electric guitar, all of which I had to buy on what was called the Never Never, because. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any money, my family. We were very, very poor. But you could buy them by paying, you know, two pounds a week. And I got my, my father, mother, thanked them. Uh, they bought me an electric guitar and an amplifier. And uh, I just fell into it from there. Never thinking I was going to do it professionally or make a living out of it. Although I'd still be doing it now, 60-something years later. <laughs>
0: Now it's really interesting because I've listened to a number of your solo things, Tom. And if anyone hasn't, you you need to, please do yourself the service. Um, and one of the things that jumped out at me was that sort of post-war Chicago blues kind of sound that it had to it. Oh, yeah. uh, were there, I mean, the first artist that came to mind was B.B. King, instantly. Um, yeah. is, is he one of the folks that you would look to influence or was there, obviously there's a lot of people in the mix.
6: He was later. He okay. was later. What happened to me is that I loved rock and roll, and I was quite into s- some pop. Uh, but by the early 60s, uh, rock and roll had become very tame. And uh, a lot <laughs> of the people had sort of moved away from it, like Elvis did very early on. And Johnny Cash went off more into country, and uh, you know, Chuck Berry went to jail, and Jerry E. Lewis was thrown out of England for bringing his 13-year-old child bride with him. So I was looking for something to replace the excitement of uh, rock and roll. And by listening to Chuck Berry, I became aware of Chess and Checker Records in Chicago, who were recording The Giants. So along with We were dotted all over the United Kingdom. There were people seeking out these records. Elmore James, Johnny Hooker, Muddy Waters, Sunny Boy Williamson, Howling Wolf, Little Walter, all of these people. That replaced the excitement of rock and roll for me. And it turned out there were a few other people dotted around. Um, Obviously. Some of them went on to be famous like Nick Jagger, Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, Eric Burden, the animals up there in Newcastle, Stevie Winwood in Birmingham. Um, we were all listening to these and it's really weird because we're white kids and there is something about this Chicago 1956 music that completely spoke to us. Jimmy Reed was another one that we loved. And um, that was, that was a game changer for me. I was playing in a little local band. We were playing in the youth club at the pubs, roundabout. Uh, occasionally, we used to have a thing called Saturday morning pictures, which is where children went along between 9 and 12 on a Saturday morning. And we would watch, you know, a Randolph Scott cowboy film and Batman, black and white, and uh, you know, a few cartoons and things like that. But we occasionally played in this local band before the film went on. Yeah, we go and play three, four, five songs. We were playing a combination of the things like Buddy Holly that we loved and also things by Cliff Richard and the Shadows and stuff. And I realized somewhere about 1962 that I didn't want to go on doing this. I wanted to try playing Chicago blues, which was, it's like the innocence of youth. You think, you know, there were these giants who were playing it over there in Chicago. And most of them were still alive then. And, uh, you know, I thought, I want to do that. And I can remember when I left my little local band, uh, the guys I'd grown up with, they were all at the school school with me and things like that. And they said, you know, no one wants to hear that music. And I said, I know, but I want to play it. <laughs> and I felt like, you know, it's like the jazz it's like the jazz musician who, you know, I've got a friend who teaches saxophone players. He's got a young player. He thinks is tremendous, and the player is capable of playing anything on saxophone. He's like sixteen years old, and my friend who is teaching him said, "You know, have you considered a career in music?" And the guy said, "Yeah, yeah," and my friend said, "Well, you know, you could you could explore classical music with a clarinet, or you know, there are pieces for saxophone, or you could." You could go into playing popular music, you know there's always call for Satan, he said, "No, I want to play jazz." And my friend said to him, "Why do you want to play jazz?" He said, "I'm not good with crowds <laughs> <laughs> So I felt a bit like that when my friend said to me, "You know, no one wants to hear it, I know, but yeah, and and then there was a search over a few years, well no, really it wasn't a few years, it was a year or two where. I uh, saw an advert in the Melody Maker, which was an English newspaper, music paper, which specialised more in dance music and jazz, but it was having to move with the times. And um, people advertised for musicians in that, or, you know, accordionists wanted or, you know, trombone player wanted. And I saw this advert, which said, uh, I'm a piano player playing in the style of Otis Spann, who was the Chicago piano player. And um, I'm looking to join a band if it's out there playing the music of Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf, Sunny Boy Williamson, etc. And I wrote to this, it was a box number, and I wrote to the box number and said, well, I haven't got that band, but I'd like to be in it as well. And he said, well, come down to Oxford where he lived. I was still living in Wimbledon with my folks. And um, he was a guy called Ben Palmer. There's another whole story there. Ben went on to be a bit of a, almost like a father figure to Eric Clapton and was roadie for cream and stuff like that. And and anyway, I met Ben. And uh, through Ben, I met Paul Jones, who was to become the singer of Manfred Man. Ben and Paul and I, throughout the summer of 1962, we were trying to find other musicians who wanted to play what we wanted to play and we just could not find them, and uh, time rolled on. Paul went off and joined the, the very beginning of Manfred for Man, which was right towards the end of 1962. And I was sort of, I, I'd had a job, but I'd given it up because, well, I worked in an office, and I realized that working in an office was not gonna be, wasn't gonna keep me sane. Yeah, <laughs> uh, people, you know, A lot I was of us working. With, that out. <laughs> I was working with eighteen-year-olds like myself who were talking about their pension plans and what they would do when they retire. It was an insurance company. I left there and I was doing nothing, um, and I uh, I went along for an audition at the Station Hotel in Richmond, which is West London. And the Station Hotel was where the Stones really took off in 1963. They play there every Sunday. And I used to go there every Sunday to see the Stones playing. They were the band I wanted to be in. Uh, they were really, they were just playing Chicago blues, really. Jimmy Reed, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, all that sort of stuff. And I uh, i went along one weekday to audition for a guy who was getting an R&B band together. Now, I didn't ask him what he played when, when, when. yeah, I just wanted to play. So he said, come along to the station, we're doing a gig and uh, you can sit in. So I walked in and it was like, it was like an Edward Hopper painting. You walk through the barn, you open the door and there's this dark room with a band on the stage. And I know I'm silhouetted against the light behind me with a guitar in one hand and I'm in the, and I know I'm in the wrong place. I want to vanish without, Anyone seeing me, but the leader of the band uh, beckons me to go to the stage, and I do. I know I'm in the wrong place, because on stage are three trombone players, (laughs) a string bass player, a drummer, and piano. And what they're playing, it's lovely, but it's not what I want to do. They're playing, like, Count Basie tunes. And uh, I uh, you know, I, I got up there and played. Now, I'm still learning the guitar very much. So. And for anyone who, who knows anything about music and guitar players. Uh, they said what should we play and I'm trying to think of something that I know that they might know, because it's obvious they don't know. They don't know Muddy Waters they don't know they know <laughs> Chuck Berry and uh, uh, they, I meant, sorry Count Basie. That's what they know and they know uh, Joe Williams who was Count Basie's singer. And I thought well Kansas City, which I loved by Wilbur Harrison, and Little Richard did a great version. I thought we could do that. It's a nice easy 12 bar. Well, they said, yeah, we know that. And they're thinking more of a sort of Joe Williams type version, swinging Count Basie. And he says, "Uh, I'll count it in. E-flat okay? And he goes, one, two, one, two. I'm thinking E-flat? E-flat for a guitarist like me, you know? I knew E flat as the eleventh fret up there on the on the bass string. So I'm playing it like Wilbert Harrison's version, which was like Jimmy Reed going to Kansas City. Yeah, and they're going going to Kansas City, Kansas City, here I come. And we'd finished the song, and I went um, straight off stage. They <laughs> did play another one. I said, No, no, no. no, no. I go off and my girlfriend. Who I'd gone with, who, after many years in between, is my wife, and she's now downstairs. But we didn't get married for so many years after that. Um, I came off, and she said, "How was it?" And I said, "Oh, wrong place, wrong band, you know." And she said, "Oh, never mind. Oh, well, this is Eric. I'm at art school with him. He loves the blues, and that was Eric Clapton."
0: Oh wow!
5: Wow. Um,
6: and so Eric and I just spent the next hour exchanging names like John Lee Hooker and he'd say Elmore James and I'd say Buddy Guy and he'd say Magic Sam and, you know, and we just hit it off like two kids, you know, we, we were, Eric was a little younger than me, but we were both kids. And uh,
5: was, Now was the band that you you tried out for, was that the, the Dave Hunt R&B band and did I read correctly that that the person who got
6: the gig that you auditioned for was Ray Davies? Well, I only heard this recently, but I'm told that, yeah, it was the Dave Hunt (laughs) R&B band, and Dave Hunt had had a trad band, I don't suppose trad means anything to you, but it was like New Orleans Dixieland band, and there was a whole craze for trad, which I quite like from the sort of, I mean, Lonnie Donegan, who I mentioned, He was the uh, banjo player in the Chris Barber Jazz Band, and then he made this single, big name, you know, big star. But uh, Dave Hunt had had this Confederates Jazz Band, which would not be very PC these days because they wore the complete Confederate gray, American Confederate uniform with the the gray hat and and all that. Uh, Yes, exactly. You wouldn't get far with that uh, <laughs> uh, these days. Uh, and they had the Confederate flag and all. And they were all English, oh, they, knew nothing about, they knew nothing about it. So he decided that R&B was the coming thing and he he was getting a band together. And I never knew until probably five, maybe 10 years ago, someone said, did you know that Ray Davis got the job that you turned down? You know, I didn't know that.
5: That's amazing. Uh, and then so you've met this this young other young uh blues enthusiast named eric uh mr clapton um and you, you ended up being i think in was it two bands with him the roosters and then casey jones and the engineers
6: yeah the roosters was the the roosters was a good band we all loved what we were doing uh we we've, we've got ben palmer who i mentioned earlier he came in on piano and a guy that i uh, went to school with called Terry Brennan, another Irish name. And uh, Terry had a great record collection. He was really into black music. And uh, yeah, we were just, you know, we were stumbling around trying to be a band. And we had a drummer called Robin Mason, who honestly was only in there because he had a van uh, as well as a drum kit, so we could move around a bit. And he was okay, but he wasn't really into what so we, at that uh, point
5: w- was was you were in two bands with him was could you have seen or did you see eric clapton at that point and think like well this guy's clearly going to be acknowledged as one of the greatest ever was it evident then or was he still kind of learning
6: absolutely not we were both learning <laughs> uh, i had no idea that he was going to go on and be so successful uh The two of us played guitar. We never found a bass player to be in the band. We had just two guitars, uh, piano and drums, and uh, Terry who sang and played harmonica. And you know, because we like Jimmy Reed, Jimmy Reed hardly had any bass players on his records. Uh, It's like Jimmy Vaughan once said to me, I hate bass players, they get in the way. Um, But I don't feel like that about them. so we had this band called the Roosters, which didn't so much stop as fall apart. Uh, we had dates in the book, and then suddenly we didn't have any dates in the book. and We didn't have anyone booking us. We were trying to get dates here and there, hustling. Terry would get a gig here with someone else would get a gig there. Uh, we'd made, maybe do one or two a week and then do one the next week and then not do anything for three weeks. And, In the end, it just tapered off because none of us were capable of holding a band together. And Eric and I somehow ended up with Casey Jones and the Engineers. And that was, was, again, it was a good band, a good bass player. Uh, Eric and myself on guitar. I've forgotten the bass player's name and a drummer called Ray Stock. And Casey came from Liverpool. And there was a point at which people, you know, the major record labels in London were going up to Liverpool and basically coming out of Lime Street Station and signing the first person they saw to a record contract, as long as they had the Liverpool accent, you know, and Casey was a bit better than that, but not not a lot better. He'd been uh, in a band in Liverpool called Cass and the Casanovas, who were doing The Cavern, uh, and he'd made this single on uh, EMI Uh song called One Way Ticket to the Blues, written by Neil Sedaka. It was a B-side of one of his hits. And so we were sort of put together as a band to go and do a few dates with him. Because he got a single out and there was some interest in him. so we uh, all got into a van and drove off to Manchester and Macclesfield and places. And we also played the Scene Club in uh, London, which was really important to the development of the whole R&B boom in London, because they had a great DJ called Guy Stevens, who would get all the latest American records over. And, and, uh, you know, he was playing a mixture of blues, R&B, soul, Motown, all of that. And um, young people would turn up to this club and, you know, we were there playing with Casey Jones, but we were doing a lot of Chuck Berry songs with uh, Casey Jones. A bit like the Beatles, their early set. Had a load of Chuck Berry in it. And yeah, that, that was Casey Jones, but it's sort of that, that really wasn't what I wanted to do or what it wanted to do. But we felt we were sort of getting, dipping a toe in the water, almost becoming professional musicians. You know, we were getting paid. We were turning up at places. And uh, uh, one of the funniest things, if, if I'm not digressing too much, we turned up at this club in Macclesfield and, um, we set our equipment up, we were tuning up and getting ready to play. And this woman came in and she said, Hello, I'm Polly Perkins. You're my, you're, you're my backing group for tonight, aren't you? Now, Polly Perkins made sort of half a dozen singles and uh, none of them were hits, but um, suddenly she put sheet music in front of us. Now, if there's one way to shut a rock guitarist up, it's to put sheet music in front of him. That will really shut <laughs> him up. So, She and she wanted to do things like Who's Sorry Now? Connie Connie Francis and stuff like that. Well, you know, Eric and I, we and the bass player, we busked our way through it. Um, Heaven knows what it sounded like. I hope it was never recorded by anyone. (laughs) And then we did our set with Casey Jones and the engineers. And I turned up for a gig in Reading at a ballroom. Uh, with Casey Jones and the Engineers. We were playing support to The Undertakers, who were a really good Liverpool band, with Jackie Lomax, who went on to record for Apple. And uh, they were a good R&B-based band. Great, good saxophone player, good band all around. Uh, uh, We played support to them. And uh, Eric was from there. So I played the the whole set without him and then I went back to the scene club the next day and Guy Stevens said, oh no, Eric's not doing it anymore. And I thought, well, neither am I in that case. I was only in there because he was there and I liked playing with him. But I had no idea he was going to come on to the success he had. And shortly after that he joined the Yardbirds and I went down and uh, sat in at least once or twice with them when they were playing at a pub in Croydon, South London. Um, and I still didn't see that uh, you know, Eric was going to be what he was. Shortly after that, I joined Manfred Mann. But they didn't want me on guitar, they wanted me on bass. So I uh, walked on stage with a bass guitar the first night I played with Manfred Mann. I'd never touched one before that. But I figured it's four strings, can't be that hard. I can play six strings. So. Again, it's the innocence, the arrogance of youth, you know, you don't see the pitfalls.
5: Hey, we are going to have to take a quick pause here to hear from our sponsors, but but we'll be back in just a second with the great Tom
6: McGinnis. And we're back. The the first time I became aware of what Eric had become was when I heard the Blues Breakers album, the Beano album with uh, Huey Flint, my dear friend Huey Flint, and uh, John McBee on bass and John Mayle and Eric. And I was doing a college gig uh, somewhere with Manfred Mann, and the DJ put this record on. And I was transfixed listening to the guitar playing. And I went over and said, who's that? And he said, it's John Mayer, Bluesbreakers Breakers with Eric on guitar. I said, wow, wow. And I thought then, wow, wow. You know, I'd spent 18 months at that point not playing guitar, deliberately because Manfred Mann were good musicians. And I really had a lot of catching up to do on bass guitar. So I really concentrated on that. And I thought when I heard that, I thought, wow, I should never have stopped playing guitar. Not that I think I would have ever been anywhere near as good as Eric, who I think is wonderful. I still think he's wonderful. You know, A lot of people knock him for just doing the same thing. It's like knocking Bing Crosby for sounding like Bing Crosby. Or Rikuda for sounding like Rikuda, or BB King for sounding like me. I mean, BB King sounded the same for sixty years, and it was brilliant. And um, yeah, that opened my eyes to Eric's playing that Blues Breakers, as it did to a whole bunch of people all around the world.
3: Well, now, now coming from that live life where you know you would do a gig, which do you prefer? Do you still prefer doing live gigs, or do you prefer the studio at this point?
6: I've always preferred playing. I love playing live. If I'd never been in a hit band, I suspect I'd still be playing in a pub somewhere locally. Uh, I just love the interplay of live music between the musicians and then with the audience. Mm -hmm. If there's an audience there, there might not be if you're in the pub down the road, but no, (laughs) uh, I've always loved uh, playing live. I like the studio a lot. I like the technology of things and I like uh, you can try things out. It's, you know, especially once you got to multi-tracking, uh, you know, you didn't have to get it right. First day, you could uh, repair or overdub and all those things. I do like the studio and I like songwriting. I like trying to write songs, uh, but for me, playing live is is uh, it's, I mean, my doctor tells me to keep on playing because it's what keeps me healthy wow. and it does mentally and physically, you know.
3: And then going back to, you know, you guys were, were, you know, at the birth of rock and roll. What was it like to hear your song on the radio for the first time?
6: Amazing, literally amazing. Uh, I joined Manfred for Man after they put a couple of singles out and I'd heard them on the radio. Uh, but they didn't really make much waves except Cock-A-Hoop, which was their second single. I remember John um, John Lennon liking it in a Melody Maker thing where they played him some new records and, he, you know, he, he said he liked that and it led to Ready, Steady, Go, which was the pop music program in England uh, every Friday night at six o'clock. Uh, and that's they where you... came to the now, that's, that's where the,
3: you guys took over from Dusty Springfield, correct? Because she had done the first season, and then you guys did the next one, the the, the theme?
6: No, no. Um, no, I mean, I don't know about... You see, we did the theme tune.
3: Right, that's the... I think, did she do the first season, and then you guys replaced her after that as a theme song, or what? am I getting this my is, seasons
6: wrong? Uh, it didn't really have a season. It went on every week. It was like Dick Clark's American bandstand. It was just on there every Friday night for a couple of years, three years, something like that. Um no, the the theme tune before we joined was Pipeline by the Safaris. An American re- record. Right. You know, surf oh, yeah. surf instrumental. I think I'm right in saying that. I don't think Dusty ever sang the theme tune of Ready Steady. There was never a theme called Ready Steady Go, anyway. Mm. But Hell's bells. Memory plays funny tricks, and you could <laughs> well be right. Um, and uh, they asked uh, us to write before I joined. They asked the band to write a theme, an opening theme for Ready, Steady, Go. And they gave quite a brief. It was like being given a jingle to write. It had to be, you know, thirty seconds long. Have that bow diddly rhythm, and it had to it had to have a countdown in it: five, four, three, two, one because it would be 543 to 1 the screen would burst into life for the opening of the program so um before i joined they'd recorded that they recorded it in late november 63 or maybe early december 63 and i joined just before christmas 63 and almost immediately we were on the radio and it was that was that was it was amazing for them, it was even more amazing for me because I'd had to get a job moving furniture around in a big department store. And, you know, I was doing that for about six weeks. And then the next thing I knew, I was on television uh, within about three weeks of joining the band. And it was our manager, we, were, we used to play the Marquee Club in London every Monday night. And our manager, Ken Pitt, who um, himself had an amazing story to tell, But uh, Ken came down. We'd just done our sound check at the marquee before. um, We were resident there every Monday night. And uh, he came down after the sound check. It was about 6.30. And the record had come out on the Friday. And he said, it's 28 in the charts. And we just went mad. You know, if it never got past 28, that moment would have lived with me. It was a fantastic feeling to get into the record charts. And it went up and up partly because it's on Ready Steady Go every Friday and uh, and we went on Ready Steady Go to plug it in we were doing all the TV shows there were a lot of pop music shows that we could have uh, we could promote it on and uh, there it was big hit
0: and it was really over the next you know 10 or so years it, it really felt like the musicians from the united kingdom were coming to the states and it was kind of going back and forth with different musical acts uh one of which we've covered on our show and i i'm sure if you have interactions with hundreds of people throughout your career one of them was actually jimmy hendrix um, uh-huh. and yeah. uh and I, I was wondering did you ever have any interaction with jimmy while he was in london
6: no i didn't i <sighs> okay. went to see him i went to see him at the savile theater which was a great oh, wow. gig and it was the day after um oh, it was the Sunday at the Savile and on the Friday, Sergeant Pepper had been released. So they opened with Sergeant Pepper that night. Surrealism, mm-hmm. Noel. Oh wow! And um, I saw a lot of Noel afterwards because Noel moved to County Cork in Ireland in the seventies, and uh, I was visiting my relatives over there, and my cousin. Joe Joe Lyons. He was um, he was uh, a local justice of the peace and a postman, and uh, and he said to me, uh, "Do you know a fellow called Noel Redden? And I said, "Yeah, I know Noel. He's I deliver his mail now. He's living out there at uh, where Ardfield, you know." So I went to see Noel, and um, you know, I knew him anyway from before he'd ever joined Jimmy Henry but I didn't know Jimmy Andrews at all funny thing is my cousin who was a justice of the peace after he'd heard I'd been out to Knowles he said to me I wouldn't be spending too much time out there Tommy I do believe there might be drugs involved
3: <laughs> there wasn't any of that going around wow. in the 60s right nah. nah nothing
6: <laughs> surely not he w- I mean, this is probably irrelevant and you can edit out, but Noel did get busted for growing marijuana plants. And he he had this big house. It was 300 years old, but it was falling apart. He got a settlement from the Hendricks estate and he bought the house with this, but then he never had any money to do it up. I mean, they bought him out, so he never got any future royalties. Uh, He he couldn't fix this house and he he gave the top floor drip through the roof all the time. So he grew marijuana plants up there. And everyone knew, I mean, he wasn't selling it, he was just growing it for himself and friends. And um, a new police officer was transferred to the local town. And the new police officer was badgering the sergeant all the time to go out there because he was sure there were drugs involved out there. And the sergeant knew full well, there were drugs. So um they went out there, and they went upstairs, and the sergeant was walking on, there were little rooms off to each side. The sergeant's walking along, and he looks into this room, and it's filled with marijuana plants. So keeps on walking, doesn't say anything, and the guard <laughs> comes along behind him, enthusiastic puppy, you know. He said, Sergeant, Sergeant, look what I found! <laughs> so Noel was hauled off before the magistrates, where he was charged with just possession and uh, who spoke in his defense the sergeant
3: <laughs>
6: oh, I, think, I think noel was fine something like 10 pounds and told to be a good boy anyway that's not really what you wanted me to mm. talk about great story yeah. good story the, the way i good
5: <laughs> yeah no the way i the way i look at it is that noel just didn't want to waste that dripping water i mean <laughs> make no, it hit the it floor didn't. or it can hit the plant and uh it,
7: it yeah. was sort of ecological, ecological photosynthesis.
6: Before, before before it was known it was being eco- ecological he was using the rainwater to grow plants i mean yeah good thing innovative yeah
5: yeah <laughs> this, this just seems like such a an exciting time and the one thing that as i've sat and listened to you you, you know tell tell the stories about the people you encountered you've already mentioned I say, you know, Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood and Eric Burden and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And then you think about, you know, the kinks were, were soon to come and you're, you're less than 10 years at this point from Queen and Led Zeppelin and the, you know, the Yardbirds were, were around before that. What was it about your country at that point in time that made it such an incredible incubator? For unbelievable music. Because that the the music that, that came out of your country from the early 60s to the early 70s is among the best music, in my opinion, that's ever been created.
3: Yeah, literally, if I if I had to choose, it would just be that just be the UK and would just be that time frame. If I could only like isolate it to one, de- like you were only allowed to listen to one portion, it would be that.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because there's something I had- in the water. <laughs> If I had to choose a decade, it wouldn't be an actual decade, but it would be 55 to 65. Because what seems strange to me is that we were re-exporting American music as far as we were concerned. The Stones, The Animals, Spencer Davis Group, The Who, all of us. We all learned from American music. Without American music, what would have happened in the 60s would not have been what happened because we were all drawing on particularly black music. Even the white people that we liked, the Carl Perkins and the Hank Williams and that, they'd all listened to black music which had formed them into what they were. Why did it happen? I have a few theories, a, a few thoughts about that. One is that we'd gone through a period of austerity immediately after the war. And somewhere, well before the '60s, uh, we had a thing called Teddy Boys, where they loved rock and roll, and they dressed up in long draped jackets and almost like zoot suits, drainpipe trousers, Winkle picker shoes, you know, shoes that come to a real point, mm-hmm. and sort of haircuts like Tony Curtis, that sort of haircut. And they were called te- And they were really into rock and roll. Um, money was in people's pockets for the first time uh, particularly by the early 60s people had spare money teenagers had spare money i mean up until really up we had rationing until quite late after the war sweets were still rationed in england until the early 1950s meat and cheese and stuff like that was all rationed throughout the 40s so we went through this austerity and then suddenly people had money in their pockets. Young people had money in their pocket, and there was a great record label over here called London American, it was part of the Decca Group. And London American would put out like 10 American singles every week, and they were putting out records, obviously things that had been big hits, like, uh, you know, there might be a whole lot of shaking going on by Jerry Lewis, but there would be five other records that had made the lower reaches of the Billboard charts. So we were getting a chance to hear these. There was a station called Radio Luxembourg, which was like a pirate station broadcasting from Luxembourg into England. And they would play all the latest singles. Whereas the BBC would devote, you know, the the least amount of time possible to pop music because it was a dreadful influence on young people. We wouldn't want them to hear too much of that American rubbish. (laughs) Um, Much better better that we hear a good old English folk song. Um, So we were hearing the music. Lonnie Donegan really changed things dramatically by teaching us those three chords. And uh, then we amplified them. And then there was full employment pretty well. You could try to be an actor. You could try to be a graphic designer. You could try to be a musician. You could try to be a writer of novels or something, knowing that you could get a job on a Monday. Might not be hugely well paid, but you know, that, that's quite a liberating thing uh, to know that if you give it a try, you can fall back on uh, like a safety net of a job. Um, but, you know, I'm just, these are random thoughts. I've no idea why it happened. There was a boom in, you know, writing, novels, there was a boom in filmmaking. Um, people were getting to realize their dreams in a way that hadn't been possible since 1939 in the beginning. Well, actually, goes way back before that, because like you, we had the Great Recession throughout the 30s, beginning in the 20s. You know, people didn't have money in their pockets. We had money in our pockets for the first time, and a certain security that you could... Um, get a job. I mean, when I said to you, I was working in a furniture store, it was in Kingston where my, comrade, my my wife and then my girlfriend, she was at art school there. Eric was at art school there. A lot of people were at art school there. And when they got thrown out, as some of them did, they'd go and work in this department store. And you could, <laughs> you know, you'd just go along there and say, have you got a job? And they say, yeah, when, you know, can you start today? It was that sort of that cushion that made you try things. I think everything in the whole world is down to economics.
3: So you've you've done <laughs> you've done so much. You've done music. You've done directing. You've done writing. What do you consider one of your greatest accomplishments?
6: <laughs> Being alive.
3: <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> uh,
5: well, did you did you I'm, not want some?
6: Um... I, I remain incredibly. Um, uh, You know, again, childishly optimistic, I I, I'm I'm still capable of doing something else, you know, who knows, maybe writing some more songs, maybe getting another sort of band together. Uh, I've had a blues band with Paul Jones for 43 years called the Blues Band. And we've just stopped it. So, you know, I'd quite like to get because we were going back to that roots thing of Chicago blues. Um. Uh, I might do something like that. There are other, you know, I want to write some more songs uh, and find an outlet for them. I'd like to do a bit of production as well, because I've done a bit over the years. So what was the best? Well, there have been lots of great moments. There, there isn't really a best. You know, Hearing the first of Man hit 543 G1 on the radio is great. Uh, getting to number one for the first time with Do One Diddy Diddy. Was great. Getting to number one in America with Dua Diddy Diddy was great. Uh, having hit after Paul Jones left Manfred Man in 1966, Mike Darbo came in. We all wondered whether we could continue being successful, but we were. You know, we had Mighty Quinn was number one in England. Songs like Ha Ha Said the Clown were number one. It was number one for six weeks in France. It was the number one hit, hit in Germany. Didn't have too many hits in America. I will say over that period. That's the way. And then after Man for Man broke up, I got another band together with my dear friend Huey Flint, who's the drummer with the Blues Breakers, and two wonderful singer-songwriters from Scotland, Gallagher and Lyle. And we had a couple of hit records with a band called McGuinness Fred. And then in late the late 70s, Paul and I got this band called the Blues Band together just to do two gigs. And we ended up doing, I don't know. 5,000 and making 16 albums and stuff like that. So I'm pleased I'm still playing music. I'm pleased I've still got fingers and uh, the, um, a guitar. Yeah, I'm,
5: I'm glad you mentioned uh, McGinnis Flint because that man's music sounded to me, to my ears, considerably different than what you had played before. And honestly, really, in, in sitting here in 2022, as I listened to that, it, songs like Malt and Barley Blues and When
6: I'm Dead and Gone almost sound like American bluegrass music. Um, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, McGinnis, when Huey and I, when Manfred Mann broke up in 1969, I honestly thought that was it. It's all over for me. You know, I've had five years of being in a hit-making band. That doesn't happen again. And I'm not just talking about do I have the talent or anything like that. I'm fully aware of what happens in life is random. It's down to luck, down to chance encounters. How did I meet Eric Clapton in a pub when I was doing an audition? Um, things like that. Um, you know, we had three number one hits. Do our Diddy Diddy, we heard by the Exciters. We put it into our live set. It was dying, didn't mean a thing. Whereas songs like Smokestack Lightning, Got My Mojo Working, they're going down a storm. And the two or three hits we'd had at that point, they're going down a storm it? wasn't. We were about to drop it and our record producer we were doing our first album The Five Phases of Man Pro Man our record producer said uh, is there anything in the live set that we haven't recorded? Because that's what the first album consisted of mostly tunes that we were playing live and um, you know someone said well there's this tune we've been playing but it's not going down well and we played it to him John Burgess was our a and man at yeah, mine. he said that's a hit and I can remember saying to John John it's dying on stage it's really not happening. it was a hit you know chance same thing with Pretty Flamingo Paul had announced to us he was leaving the band and John Burgess brought the song Pretty Flamingo to us and Paul didn't like it at all and uh, John said well try it for me I think it's a hit Paul's attitude was, well, I'm leaving anyway, so it doesn't matter to me whether it's a hit or not. And he did a really good job of singing it. And it went to number one. But that made carrying on afterwards, he left immediately after that, that made going on again and having hit records seem even more of a task for that. You know, none of us were convinced we could go on and be successful. But then you know we had we had a whole run of hits with Mike Darbo as the singer in England and a guy called Lou Reisner who was the head of Mercury Records came over to London and he was having supper with Mike Darbo at Mike's place and uh, we were signed to Fontana Records in England and in a parallel deal to Mercury Records in America who were all part of the phonogram group of companies so Lou Reisner said, look, you really haven't uh, had a hit since Paul Jones left. Is there anything you haven't released um, that I could hear? And Mike Darbo put on Mighty Quinn. the Bob Dylan shoot. And Lou Reisner said, a bit like John Burgess had said three years earlier, that's a hit. And uh we listened to it again. We went over to Mike. He said, Lou rising says, here, we should look at it again because we'd we put it aside. we recorded it, put it aside. And uh, Michael put it on his record player. We had an acetate, put it on his little 45. And Manfred went over to Mike. Mike. Mike had a grand piano in his room there. And Ma- Manfred went over and started playing along to the acetate. And he said, your record player's running fast. We recorded it in A and it's playing in B-flat. And so we went back into the studio and sped up the master to make it slightly faster in B-flat, added some tablas and a bit of piccolo flute, and uh, it was the number one record. But again, if that chance of Lou Reisner hearing it and saying that's a hit, we might never have put it out. How did I get onto that? I can't remember, but chance, <laughs> chance all the time. Yeah, Gallagher and Lyle, who wrote Morton Barley Blues, <clears throat> and when I'm dead and gone uh Huey and I we'd first of all set off to try and get a band together playing more like um Blood Sweat and Tears in Chicago and we had a great uh avant-garde trombonist called Paul Rutherford who brought in an avant-garde saxophone player called Trevor Watts and then we found this uh, great bass player jazz bass player called Chris Lawrence who also plays classical funnily enough I when when it didn't work out with McGuinness Flint and him, the next thing I saw him doing was playing Vivaldi uh, at the Royal Festival Hall in London, and Chris Spedding on guitar. We were trying to get this band together playing sort of jazz rock, but it was impossible to get these musicians together in one place because they were all doing lots of other things. So, Huey had gone for a drink in a pub, and a guy came in, Tony Reeves, who's the bass player in a band called John Heisman's Coliseum, and also was an a and man for Decca and knew Huey from when John Mayle was on Decca Records. And, <coughs> was there. and he said, what are you doing, Huey? And Huey said, oh, Tom McGinnis and I, we're trying to get a band together and just can't get the musician. And um, uh, Tony Reeves said, oh, you should meet these two sk- Scottish songwriters, Benny Gallagher and Graham Lyle. They're really good. And Benny and Graham came round the next day and uh, they were they were what we were looking for you know they were a self-contained songwriting unit they wrote tremendous songs really really talented people and if huey hadn't been in that pub and bumped into tony reeves that night we wouldn't have met them so they wrote more barley blues when i'm dead and gone but is there there's something distinctly bluegrass sounding about is there There is. Well, there's another influence. Banjo? Um, Yeah, there's a banjo on Morton Barley Blues and there's a mandolin on When I'm Dead and Gone. Okay. Um, You know, I can tell you the story of how When I'm Dead and Gone got to be written. I bought this lovely little mandolin, which was like guitar shaped, and it had a picture of a Spanish lady on the back of it. I just bought it because it looked nice in an antique shop. I strung it up and I couldn't play it, you know, I sort of fiddled around and, and I hung it on the wall. And then we were sitting around my, uh, we were rehearsing with McGuinness and got a record deal, which was amazing. We got a fantastic record deal through EMI, or well, Capital directly. Only Paul McCartney had a better royalty rate than we got.
3: That's, we that's usually this, not wow. the, that's, yeah. not, that's not usually the case when, no. when we talk about artists, it's like, we talk about how bad their deals are yep.
6: well when we were doing do what did diddy, when when emi earned a dollar we were getting one cent on that record between the five of us and our manager had to take his percentage as well oh but we're, anyway um we were, lit, we were around my place rehearsing with McGinnis. we got a deal and uh uh we listened to the first Robert Johnson album, A King of the Delta Blues. We were listening and talking about his life. And uh, nothing was said by Benny and Graham, but at the end of the afternoon, we rehearsed a little more, and then they went off home. And uh, sorry, is that dog annoying you? I can shut the window. <laughs> no? It's, You're it's right totally
3: fine, as long as our listeners know. I mean, okay. we...
6: It's the neighbor's dog. He's a policeman. He's got a dog. Um, He's a very nice policeman. (laughs) Uh, Where was I? Yeah, we were listening to Robert Johnson. At the end of the day, Graham said, can I borrow the mandolin? I'll bring it back tomorrow. And he came back the next morning and he said, uh, him and Benny, they'd written this song. And they said, um, it's sort of slightly inspired by Robert Johnson. You know, his short life, his early death you know, did he die? Was he poisoned by a jealous woman? So if you listen to the record, the one of the lines is hey there, ladies, Johnson's free. And it's about, you know, Robert Johnson. And it's on Mandolin. But the reason we were using things like Banjo and Mandolin is we were really into the band. I awesome. love the first two albums by the oh, band. Yes. And that people didn't say Americana in those days, but they would dipping into everything bluegrass country rock and roll it was all in there and we wanted to do something like that but we also brought a bit of because Benny and Graham are from Scotland and I'm from Irish roots we brought a slightly Celtic thing in there as well and so there was always a bit of folk bit of rock and roll uh, even a hint of jazz in there on some of the tracks we did um, um so yeah but you know Fox on the Run which Tony Hazard wrote which was a big hit for Manfred Man Pre-Man in England and all around Europe and Australia it wasn't much of a hit in America but it's been done by so many bluegrass bands since then mm-hmm. uh, luckily for Tony Hazard who wrote it
3: <laughs> Will do you have uh, any
0: other questions? Well, I think one of the big ones was, I understand you had written a book in the mid-80s about wanting to be a rock and roll star. Um, Obviously, times change and methods change. I would say, what advice would you impart to anyone looking to carve out a music career today?
6: I don't think it's ever changed. Get a good lawyer, get, get a good accountant. Right. <laughs> uh, Noel, Noel would say that. Noel Redding would mm-hmm. say that, but it'd also say and carry a gun. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't go along with that one. Right. Get a good lawyer, get a good accountant, take advice. You'll still sign a stupid deal <laughs> because they're offering you a stupid deal and you want to be a rock and roll star. You? Yeah. yes, You know, I wrote that book because again, chance. I wrote this book because I went to Alexis Corner, I should have mentioned. Alexis Corner was one of the big influences on the stones, the animals, the yardbirds, all of us. Uh, Eric would go there. We'd go and see Alexis. Had a band which was composed mostly of disgruntled jazz musicians, but they were playing Muddy Waters tunes and stuff like that to make a living, to make a to make to make a little money. And Alexis loved the blues, and he was like. People talk of John, John Mayle as being sort of the godfather of the British blues, but without Alexis, John would never have come down from Manchester. He would still have stayed up there. Alexis opened the doors. You know, the Stones would go down and watch. Well, Mick and Keith would go down and watch him. Paul Jones was down at the Ealing Club, which is in West London, to see him. I went to see him play at another club. He was that bit older than us, and he died in 1984. And we had a wake for him at a club called Dingwalls, and there were a lot of musicians there. And uh, Alexis was also the sort of man who was into art and paintings and literature and stuff, and a lot of it. And I got chatting to this bloke, and you know, as you can see, I can talk. And um, you know, we were drinking and talking, and uh, he said, "I'm a, I'm a publisher. Should write a book about this," you know, and I did, you know. But if if I hadn't met this man at Alexis Wake, I would never have um, got round to writing a book. It, I have to say, it was a very slim volume. I used to write it on planes and trains while I was, I was moving from one gig to the next, one hotel to the next, and I got a, a, a lovely cartoonist called w- Kipper Williams to illustrate it, who does a lot of business cartoons and uh, political cartoons. He's still around, Kipper. And it came out And I used to think that the record business was pretty inefficient. Boy, is book publishing inefficient. It made the record business look like, you know, a super, super efficient machine. Um, They set up uh, a, a promotion schedule for me where I went around all the local BBC radio stations and talked about the book. And I, funnily enough, I said, I can only give you this week in August. The book came out at the beginning of August. I can give you the first week in August. But I was then going off to Noel Redding's place in Cork with my wife and children to, to stay with him for the rest of the summer. And I said, I can do this week. And, um, and that's it. You're on your own after that in terms of publicizing it. So I did a big BBC talk show, an early, a, a Monday morning culture arts talk show and uh, that was a good bit of promotion for it. And I went to the bookshop around the corner. Had they got my book? I mean, London, have they got my book? No. I then went to Manchester. Did they have my book in the bookshops there? No. I went to Glasgow and did interviews. Did they have my book in the bookshop there? By the time I left for my summer holiday in Ireland, I hadn't seen a single copy of my book in any bookshop oh. from the length and breadth of the United Kingdom. I came back, you know, six weeks later, and there it was in the bookshops, but the promotion had been wasted, you know, because no one could buy it. People want it there and then, and if they can't have it then, with the result that about six months later, they asked me if I wanted the remaindered copies. So I got a thousand copies of my book for £100, oh, <laughs> a hundred pounds.
7: Which I
6: sold at gigs for the next five years. Uh, oh, know, I would never claim to be a writer, but it was fun doing it and, uh, you know, oh, it's interesting. I made a, I've made a couple of documentary TV programs as well. And, uh, in fact, talking about Jimi Hendrix, do you, have you ever seen a program called The South Bank Show? I have not. No. I don't think we no. get it it's over in, uh, here. English Arts <laughs> Magazine, it would probably be on PBS if it okay. ever came to, uh, to America. And, uh, you know, one week they do a program on uh, German silent film of the 1920s. And the next week they'd look at uh, Ernest Hemingway. And they did some popular music things. And with a friend of mine, Barnaby Thompson, who's now a hotshot film producer and director over here, uh, we made the South Bank show on Jimi Hendrix. Um, so, wow. you know, I, I've got have got a, I've got a. I've got an award somewhere from it, from some Italian TV festival where, um, you know, I think we got second prize for the best music documentary.
0: Oh, wow. So that was I'll fun. check that out. That's yeah.
7: awesome. That was fun
6: to do. I'm sure. And it got some good interviews for it. Got Robert Cray to talk and um, Eric Clapton and B.B. King. I interviewed B.B. Nice. King for it. Can I tell you a little story about B.B. Yes, King? Yes.
0: Absolutely, yes.
7: Please.
6: Yeah? I mean, you asked me really <clears throat> early on. Was he one of the influences? He wasn't one of the earliest for me. My earliest was uh, T-Bone Walker. That was my first influence. And he, I then discovered that T-Bone Walker had learned from Charlie Christian, the jazz guitarist. But T-Bone Walker. And then I really liked Buddy Guy. And I liked the guitarists who played with um, Howling Wolf, Hubert Sumlin, Pat Hare, fantastic, really. Uh, I was gonna say crude, but that's the wrong, but they were direct, very direct in their guitar play. And it was shortly after Eric had joined the Yardbirds and I was in Manfred Man. Eric came round to my place for a meal and he brought BB King live at the Regal, which is a seminal album. And I heard that and I was just hooked on them the music of BB king but even earlier than that when we were in the roosters terry brennan who was the singer had a single by freddie king of hideaway and have you ever loved a woman which of course eric went on to do so the first time eric heard freddie king was when terry brought this single along to a roosters rehearsal and, and put it on. and i love freddie king and albert king uh, all of those but i got B.B. Uh, King was in London, and we arranged an interview with him uh, for the Jimi Hendrix program to talk about what he what he made of him, wow. you know, how how he fitted in, and we booked a hotel room and brought a small film crew in, uh, sound and uh, sound and camera. That was all. And uh, his manager came along, who was called Sydney. Forgotten his name, New York very New York manager. And he came in with BB King, introduced him, and and said, 12.30, you finish. 12 o'clock it begins, 12.30, you finish. Doesn't run over, he's doing other things, other interviews, you know, fine. Now we've checked all the equipment. And BB King, I asked him the first question, and he starts, and the cameraman says, there's a fault with the camera, it's not working. And we've, just, we've just filmed with it, it's film camera, it's not video. We've just made sure it's working, you know, half an hour we were in there, making sure everything's done. It's not working. 10 minutes go by, start again. 30 seconds in, the cameraman says, I've got a hair in the gate, which is film speak for, there's a bit of dirt on the lens. So he has to take the camera apart. <laughs> it's, it's, It's nearly 20 past 12, and we start, yeah, I ask him a question, I ask him another question, I ask him another question. The door opens, his manager walks in, walks straight across the camera. Says, time to go, B. And B.B. King says, sorry, you know, got to do, got to go, you know, got other things to do. So I haven't spoken to him outside of doing the interviews and welcoming him. and all that. But as I left home that morning, I'd reached up under the shelf. Yeah, I've got these records beside me here. What am I pulling out? Oh, that's Django Reinhardt. But uh, you know, I'd taken live at the Regal off the shelf. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'd taken the vinyl out and i just brought the cover with me. And I said, would you mind signing this for me? So that was done in about 64, that album, 63, 64. And uh, it's now, what was it, 86, 88, something like that. And B.B. King looks at it, he said, wow, I haven't seen this in years. And he turns it over and I'd forgotten. I'd written the keys beside each song because I'm playing along to it when I'm sitting around at home, you know. And he said, why'd you do that? I have to stand up for this. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say anything, I just, Showed him a guitar plectrum.
3: Nice for the for oh, the and he said, for the listeners at home. He's holding up a he, guitar pick.
6: He said, "You should have told me, Sid. Fifteen minutes more." And he sat down, and we did fifteen minutes more talking. Oh, that's
0: amazing. It's amazing. It was.
6: It's a magical moment, you know. Oh my god! But just it's like the brotherhood of guitarists. No, right. he doesn't know anything about me, but I have got a plectrum in my pocket, and he, so we did. Yeah.
3: oh that's simply amazing and Travis do you have a final question for Tom well
6: yeah
5: well uh, well one silly one real quick did you really at one point play with a drummer who had a metal leg and would actually hit that as a drum
6: no I didn't play with him but you know I told you I worked in a department store moving furniture around and he was one of the people who helped to move the furniture. And he was a drummer in a trad jazz, Dixieland jazz band. And uh, he was he was only a few years older than me, but he'd had a motorcycle accident and he'd lost a leg. So he did play uh, with a metal leg on, on, you know, doing the bass drum pedal with that. But I saw him and he took a solo at the end of a number, a very brief solo. And he played all around the kit and then he played his leg.
0: One up on Neil Peart, I don't think (laughs) you really
6: freaked the audience out. You can imagine, you (laughs) you know, he's got a trousers leg, but inside it, there's this metal, which he's, you know, hitting with two drums. So Yeah, I didn't play with him. I did work with him in in a completely different context. I could Mm. say I've worked with that drummer.
5: You worked with him. Um, the other yeah, thing I Worked I wondered, with him
6: in a department store. <laughs> in, a, in a department store,
5: I I saw an interview where you claimed that you you didn't plan to retire till you were hundred and eight. So, are you still playing with e- either the Manfreds or the Blues Band or, or anybody else at
6: this point? Oh yeah, we're playing with the Manfreds all the time. We're touring. In fact, funnily enough, we're um, we're coming to America in uh, sometime. In, well. We're, we're briefly touching down in America. We're doing a cruise from Miami to the Dominican Republic. Oh, wow. Okay, how and do it,
3: how, how uh, do we how does our audience find you to get tickets? or have I've more... no,
6: I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I think it must be some sort of 60s thing because this is another small world thing. I was in a bookshop in Liverpool about six weeks ago. And uh, Olivia Harrison was there. She's got a book out about, you know, her life with George. Uh, and I'm just there because it's a bookshop, and I've got time to kill. And it's it was late on an evening. Uh, the bookshop shuts at eight o'clock, and they were having her there for a book signing and question and answer session. Uh, so I went up there. And who was there with her but Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon uh, and the producer oh. of Linda Ronstadt's Oh no albums. He's in this bookshop in Liverpool he's with her just for the, you know, well, well, while he's over in England. So I went over to see Peter and uh, said hello. he got no idea who I was because I had not seen him since we toured America in December 1964, when we were the support act to Peter and Gordon with Manfred Man. That's
0: incredible. Wow.
6: Yeah. Travis, Travis, you sound as though you're from the South. Oh, uh, what gave that away? Because <laughs> the guitarist who accompanied Peter and Gordon on that tour in 1964 was a guitarist from the South called Travis Womack. Do you know him at all? I've, I've heard the name, who, did he, who else did he play with? Well, he made, he had a single out called Scratchy, which was a so, It was weird because, you know, America was still very regional then in terms of radio. So we'd go to Miami and Peter and Gordon be number two, we'd be number seven. And Travis Womack would scr- Scratchy would be number 19. Then we get to Chicago and Travis Womack's Scratchy is number two. Pigeon Gordon, are number four, I and mean we're number six. So, he uh, he made at least one album for a Capricorn or someone like that. And he's he's a very good, like, Southern rock blues. He's he's got that combination of country rock blues all mixed up. Anyway, it was hearing your name, Travis, just brought him back to me.
3: It's funny because hearing,
5: my, hearing, hearing the name hearing the name Travis and the voice of a hillbilly on the other end of the zone <laughs> call. <column, probably. laughs>
3: It's so funny though because me and Travis grew up in the same house like we've been together our whole life and he's got that accent and I don't anymore.
6: Where did you where did you grow up? I know this is nothing to do with the interview. No, yep, but...
3: it's, it's we grew up in a little town called Chester South Carolina.
6: South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of bluegrassy country, isn't it?
3: It is. We have a lot of country, a lot of bluegrass.
6: Yeah. Lovely.
3: So I I know you're still playing but like what's what's next for you?
6: More playing. I mean we start touring again with the Manfreds um, next month Um, and uh, we've got a big tour planned for the end of next year in England Uh, and I'm just going on playing. I'm going to write songs because the blues band stops. I'm sort of I feel that things happen to me if I leave a space. Uh, you know I, I haven't got some plan uh, to fill up the time. I mean the time goes by anyway. I like reading, I like playing the guitar' I've got a huge family, so you know a lot of lot of lot of things to fill my time.
3: Now are there any like social medias or any way that they can, our, our listeners can find you support you in any way?
6: I don't do Facebook or. Twitter or anything like that. But we have, um, if you go to the Manfreds.com, all one word, it'll take you to our official website and there's stuff on there. And in fact, although the Blues Band has stopped going, if you go to thebluesband.com, you can see what we've been doing and um, what, what the various people in the band are doing now. But no, I don't do any of that. I, I, I mean, it's partly because, well, I hate the sort of backbiting and all that stuff of, uh, of uh, Facebook. I hate people being horrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't mind them being horrible That's... to my face when I'm there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't like the anano- anonymity that makes them sort of say terrible. So, so I just don't do it. And also, this, there's not enough hours in the day as far as I'm concerned. With emails and the phone and Skype and WhatsApp and all that thing, I've got quite enough going on. So no, uh, but people write to me, care of our agent with the Manfreds and things get to me that way. I've just signed a load of album sheet music covers for, uh, I got a sweet letter from this 16 year old boy who's autistic and uh, has attention, attention, what's it called? attention deficit disorder and uh, he wrote this lovely letter you know he's 16 years old and he says i can't make friends i can't mix with the people at school i don't have anything but my the thing that gets me by is music and he's 16 years old and he knows everything i've ever done it's (laughs) it's it's just it's just weird
3: Well, um, guys, do you have any closing thoughts? I have one oh.
6: other little story for you about yes. Mikey Quinn. Absolutely. Um, Al Grossman came to London, and we'd already had a big hit in England with a song called If You Gotta Go, Go Now, uh, which is a Dylan song, which uh, I've only ever heard one. Uh, he did record it, but it wasn't on any albums. Um, and it was, it was number two in the English charts by us. It was banned in America which in these, in these days of hip hop and, um, and and such things and what you can hear on the radio, it was banned because the hook was, if you've got to go, go now, or else you've got to stay all night. And it's a guy talking to a woman, you know. It, we were banned on sort of Midwestern stations in
1: America. Ah.
6: Anyway, Al Grossman came over because we'd had the big hit with, if you've got to go. He brought the basement tapes to London, uh, not that, not that they were called The Basement Tapes them they were just yeah. you know, a series of acetates of uh, Dylan fooling around with the band in Woodstock. And uh, Al Grossman's New York Jewish, and Manfred is South African Jewish. And we went up to this publisher's office and he starts playing songs to us and there's some good stuff on there. Uh, he played us I Shall Be Released, and we took a copy of that away with the idea of recording. Another song called Please Mrs. Henry, which we recorded and it didn't come out for like 40 years and mighty Quinn Uh, and uh, he was playing these acetates to us and it was after Dylan's motorbike crash and uh, I think he'd done Nashville skyline after that something like that anyway he's playing these demos and uh, Manfred is why does Bob get that fellow with a dreadful voice to do the demos of his songs? And Al Grossman (laughs) looks at him like, you know, New York Jewish thinking, why is this guy putting me on? And uh, Al says, that's Dylan singing.
7: (laughs) Oh, man.
6: And Malcolm says, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's awesome
3: that's amazing uh, all right well right, we... my wife
6: will be my wife downstairs will be thinking i died and I haven't <laughs> reached the age of 100 you know i was examined recently i had a medical problem and uh there's a bit of form filling goes on you know i, I had to have a procedure and uh she said, What are you hoping for from this procedure? I said, Well, I'm hoping it puts what's wrong right. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm hoping for. And she said, Well, what's your long term health plan? I don't think in those terms. But I said to her, I'd like to live to be 108 and only be sick the day before I die. So I have used that 108 figure before. So it obviously means something.
3: Well, we're hoping you stick around for that long. Now, yes. now I do have, this is a, you can say you don't want to do it. We're totally fine with that. But we do have a favor that we would like to ask of you. Every episode, usually my brother does it because he's got the voice for radio. He did not get a face. He's got a face for radio and he's got a voice for it too. Um, but <laughs> typically he does this, but we would be. Beyond honored if we could replace my brother's hillbilly radio accent with a wonderful congenial person of your status if we could get you to uh, say the phrase that we usually say every episode when we make our reference. Would you would you do us the honor of saying Of course, yeah. Okay, tell me I'm gonna, what it is. I'm yes. gonna throw it up in
6: the chat. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGinnis, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Man reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. <gasps> yes, yes, <laughs> that was perfect. I, was would, I would good. say that we
5: could retire now, but then yes. we would never get to play that. So.
3: <laughs> that was perfect.
5: I have
6: done some DJing on radio.
3: <laughs>
0: that was ideal. That could not have been better. Best thing. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Perfect. We, we,
0: we, uh, Any we part can't say too enough. Oh, my God. Now, yeah.
5: Yes. Now, now nobody has to hear my creepy um, backwards hillbilly <laughs> Bush anymore. And, and we have an actual member of Manfred Mann that did, the That's thing we do every
0: week. I, I, oh, that is beyond yep. amazing!
3: You have oh. you have no idea how happy you've just made yes. three giggling oh. hillbillies. <laughs> on, on I grew a, up in New Jersey, <laughs> so I don't know what that means. Still a hillbilly. <laughs> married into my family.
0: <laughs> fair, fair. I'll I'll accept it.
3: We we honestly cannot thank you enough for joining us. Do you have any parting yes, thoughts anything you, that you'd like our yeah. audience to actually?
6: I nothing to do with that, but I have just written, you grew up in New Jersey. Indeed, when yes. we went to America in 1964 with Manfred Man, we stayed in a really posh hotel on the corner of Fifth Avenue and Central Park. I think it was called the Strand Plaza. And I got a phone call from the front desk one evening about 5:30, and this boy said, "Mr. McGuinness. and I said, "Yes," and he said, "We have some of your cousins here at the reception desk." And I, I have got cousins. I got three, uh, two aunts and an uncle in New York who have gone over from Ireland in the 1930s, 20s. And, um, and I said, yeah, that's, yeah. I said, I'll come down and see them. And they, he said, um, they are um, improperly dressed to be in our public area. I said, pardon? They are improperly dressed to be in our public area, sir. They are in work clothes. So I said, I'm coming down. You know, and I got down. I was really <laughs> angry. And they are they're three of my cousins. They're longshoremen. One of them works backstage at the um, uh, Metropolitan Opera, moving scenery around. Yeah. And they're oh, in wow. their workshops. And uh, I'm stamping my foot at the desk. And this voice on my, forgive my bad accent, voice on my shoulders is, forget it, Tommy. Come with us. And we go round the corner. And they say, down some steps into a bar there are shamrocks everywhere everyone is called O'Sha- O'Shaughnessy Riley Mahoney I didn't put my hand in the part po- in my pocket for the next two hours I wasn't <laughs> allowed to buy a drink hey everyone this is our cousin Tommy he's number one on the charts <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, oh, I love it
3: that sounds New Jersey it does yeah it's <laughs> spot
0: on I know the yeah. type. I know and the look,
3: type. Look, look. here's the thing. My brother has done a British accents so poorly and sustainably for so many years. If you want to come on here and just do terrible American accents, we are fine with that. We will consider it pens. <laughs> <Anyway>. she, she, <laughs> figured,
5: she figures I've alienated about half the continent of Europe.
3: <laughs> I mean, you've also right. done Africa and Australia. So, you know. And
6: Italy. <laughs> I must go. Would you forgive me? No,
3: absolutely. At we all. appreciate everything. And thank you so, it's so much. Sensational, Tom. Thank and you.
6: It's been a pleasure. And, um, you know, if there's anyone else I can put you in touch with that you're thinking, why, you know, just send me an email if I can help. In any uh, yeah,
3: you know, it,
0: it can't thank you enough.
3: Cannot thank you enough. You have been wonderful. Thank you so much for giving us so much time and so many amazing stories. Uh, I will email you soon, and uh, to our, all of our listeners, uh, I hope you understand how important this interview has been. This has been so wonderful. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom McGinnis. Thank you.
6: Thank you. Thank, Thank you. pleasure.
3: And, and I will shoot you an email soon. Thank you so much, sir. I want you to,
5: we live in a world where you just said to Tom McGinnis, yeah, yeah, I'll shoot you an email. <laughs> <laughs> how did we get there? I how do we weird- get there? How, how did we get there? And how did I not turn into Bobby Boucher talking to Captain Insane during that not
3: I don't know. But but again,
5: that's hundred percent what I expected was gonna happen. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, have a wonderful Very night soon. and we will speak soon, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank Bye you. Bye-bye. All. Bye-bye. Bye. That was amazing. Either, oh I
5: was, seriously, I thought I was going to turn into Bobby Boucher talking to Captain Insano, or perhaps like the Chris Farley show, where I was just going to go like, "Hey, um, you remember when you were in Manfred Man? Huh? Yeah, but, um, was that was that cool?"
3: So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you guys enjoyed our interview with uh, Tom McGinnis. He's one of the most prolific guitar and bass players. Um, in the world. He's played with some of the Giants. He has been on so many albums. He's still touring now. And like you said, he's got this cruise. If I can get the information out to you, I will share that. But right now we're going to leave you with one of Manfred Mann's biggest hits that he did play on. So you guys have a wonderful weekend. We will see you all next week where we pick up episode two of Lane Staley. We wanted to bring this to you guys as soon as possible. So we love you all. Have a great weekend. We will see you next time.
7: It's here everybody's gonna jump for joy. On a limb. When Quinn the Eskimo gets here, all the pigeons gonna run to him. Come on without me. For someone on everyone's toes, but when Quinn the Eskimo gets here, everybody's gonna wanna doze. Come on, without you. Yes,